Let's see. Um, if y'all don't mind, can I get that a little closer to y'all? I want to, you know, be able to get like family, you know. So uh, I'm excited to be before you. Thank you so much, Kevin, for that invitation. And uh, it's just been exciting to be here. And can we give it up again for the worship team? Um, I was, they took me to the heavenlies of heavenlies. I was like, yes, what a powerful name it is. Let's, let's take that back a few times. So thank you guys so much for that. Um, well, this is my family. Uh, this is my wife, Tamika, in the scarf, and our daughter, Ariana. Uh, and we moved to Brooklyn from Indianapolis uh, two years ago. So roughly the same thing, you know, Indiana, <laughs> New York City. Um, and uh, to be part of a church plant that uh, got started uh, with uh, a guy that I actually started in ministry with here in D.C. Uh, back in 2000. And so um, our family's journey as a family began here, right here in Washington, D.C. We live uh, right a few blocks from Howard University's campus where we were doing ministry at the time. And so this is in a lot of ways kind of like coming home for me and just a lot of fond memories of the district and, uh, and all that good stuff. So I'm glad to be before you. Now, the connection with how we got here has to do with uh, this guy. Uh, let's see, next line, will you work? You will work, maybe. Okay, well, this guy who is messing up the slide presentation, um, his name is Jeremy, and there he is. And I've had the privilege of knowing Jeremy for about 13 years. Uh, he was a college student at Morehouse when we first uh, got connected. And um, he was uh, one of the students involved in a uh, music mission trip that we would put on. And so uh, we, would, we would gather students together from all over the country uh, to go and do outreach and proclaim the gospel through song. And uh, Jeremy, uh, actually, you know, we worked together for about six, seven years doing that, traveling, logging thousands of miles together all across the country. And so because of all of those experiences, um, I got a chance to know him quite well and actually was able to uh, officiate the wedding of him and Laura. So this is a picture of that day. Um, and it was a very special moment. Um, and that also gives me a unique insight into how to pray for you guys as a church, because I've worked with Jeremy quite a bit and know that he can be a handful. So uh, I will be praying for you. <laughs> um, and I also know that he is an, a, a passionate Atlanta uh, Falcons fan, and I'm an Eagles fan. And I think that's all I'm going to say about that. So we were able to finish the job that they couldn't. Um, so uh, any case... Uh, so tonight, tonight we want to talk about race in the gospel, how to break barriers and build bonds. And here's what I'm passionate about. And here's what I, I, I hope in my prayer today is that we can all see that well, we know that in our country over the last few years, it has been uh, just a very divisive time in our nation's history. Uh, it has been a time where, you know, police shootings and you know, walls with immigration and um, just comments and protests and marches in Charlottesville have all kind of stirred and created this sense of, of, of really a lot of unprecedented animosity and angst. Social media feeds are wrought with debates and comment sections that quickly, you know, devolve into shouting matches. And, um, and, and we're in this place, right? 
So often, so some of you can look at this title and go, no, please, no, not here. I just wanted to get a word, like, just get encouraged. And I do want to encourage you today because the reality is that song that we were singing, that there is no rival, that there is no equal, that Jesus is the name above all names, and that has a lot of important significance on this topic. Because you see, I believe that there's no rival when it comes to talking about how do we reconcile as a nation? How do we come together? How do we move beyond the, divide, the divisions among us? And I believe that that name Jesus is the name above all names how we get there. Now, that's not like just like a magic incantation. We just say Jesus and all of a sudden we fam and we good and we can move on. There's stuff that has to be dismantled. There's stuff that has to be broken down. That's stuff that has to be dealt with both out there and in here in order to make it happen. But we go there because we have hope that he can do it. This is not, this is beyond us, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Y'all can say amen if you're with me on this. And so because of that, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty, and there's going to be some hard stuff that we have to go at. But I remember when I got my wisdom teeth pulled, right? And the reality is that sometimes pain hurts, but wisdom allows us to go through that pain and see that there's truth and hope and goodness on the other side of that. So we're going to get on the other side of that. If y'all could just stay with me through some, some periods of pain. Can we do that tonight? All right. Now, part of the thing we have to realize is that this issue of race is not, is, is really very much central to the idea of the gospel itself. It's a thread that runs throughout scripture. This isn't something we have to kind of be all trendy and, hey, you know, race is a topic. Let's throw the gospel in there. No, this is at the very heart and soul of what God sought to accomplish from the very beginning of the story. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, we see a, a glimpse of this. I think you're going to have to control this, bro. Um, <laughs> we see a glimpse of this in, when Paul is talking in uh, Mars Hill. And he says, from one man... He has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. What Paul is building a case, he's talking to these guys on Mars Hill and he said, look, the same God made all of us. We all related. We all come from the same stock. And that this same gospel is, is a message for all of us regardless of where we're from. Not only that, but he also goes on to say, and this God determined, look, the allotted times and the boundaries of where they live. I made it a point to ask a lot of people here today, where are you from? Where were you born? And the reality of what Paul is saying in this text is the, where you were born is not a coincidence, it's not an accident, it's not something that was left to chance. I heard all types of things, Germany, Florida, you know, Jersey, which is kind of like Germany. That's kind of like a thing in New York. They just beat up on Jersey all the time. I don't really know why, but that's a thing. But the reality is God intended specifically for you to be born where you were born, but not just where, how you were born. Like, what was the context? Like, what skin that you're in? Your hair texture is not a coincidence. It's not just happenstance. Your, you know, your complexion, our height, uh, or, like God ordained this, and he says for an allotted time. So there's a purpose beyond this. I believe that what God told, what Esther, 
you know, said to Mordecai is still true today. Maybe you were raised up for such a time as this. Maybe this time in which we live in such a divisive time in our world. Maybe God has allowed us to be born and raised in this moment so that we can be sought in light and actually proclaim a truth and a hope that's even greater than the despair that we see around us. So the gospel, in fact, anticipates and responds to racial division. It both anticipates it and it responds. And that's good news because right now uh, we have a big problem. In fact, it's a similar problem to what W.E.B. Du Bois coined at the beginning of last century. He said the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And even though this statement was said over 100 years ago, the reality is we still see it manifest itself today. And that's because you just don't change a law and then everything gets magically disappeared. In fact, uh, there was, speaking of laws, back in 1954, there was a case called Brown versus Board of Education, which, sought to, which was the law, the, the Supreme Court ruling, which ended segregation. And, and part of the case to, in, in order to, the, the argument that was made that Thurgood Marshall and others made was that segregation had uh, immediate destructive impacts to those who were experiencing it. And so what he did to show this is uh, there was a professor, a professor, a psychologist named Kenneth Clark out of New York, and he would uh, offer uh, to black children a white doll and a black doll. And he asked them, which doll is, is pretty? Which doll is smart? Which doll is good and which doll is bad? And, and, and without fail, the black children picked the white dolls instead of their own. Because what they had to learn and, and immediately embrace, even at this young age, was that somehow, that of course their parents didn't tell them that, but it just got absorbed through the culture that somehow the skin that they were in was not as good. And they were able to sh show us that these uh, statements, these, these, these principles, the, the, these rhythms of our lives had very destructive impacts. Now, you say to me, well, that was 60 years ago. Lots have changed. That law was turned over, so we're good now. But the reality is that this, this experiment was done just a few years ago, this time with people of all ethnicities, Asian, Latin, white, and black. And they found that overwhelmingly, every one of those ethnic groups picked the white doll over the black doll. Now, I say this, and this is important, not, this isn't about beating anybody up. In fact, I bring up the point to say we all got work to do in order to kind of decolonialize our minds and get to a place where we realize that we are made in the image of God and that there is no hierarchy, but there's work that we have to do against the very culture and the air that we breathe. And we all have to go there. And so um, I want to encourage us with the fact that there's a challenge, but the reality is that image matters. There was, uh, some of you may have heard that uh, a movie came out uh, this weekend, uh, Black Panther. Um, I was in a theater with my Cameroonian garb, <laughs> you know, that I got from Africa when I studied abroad, to stroll up in there. And, 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 one, and people are like fascinated about like, why is this such a big deal? Why are people flocking to see this movie? You know, it actually, I just read an article. It has broken the record for sales, gross sales for a movie opening in February, ever. Biggest grossing movie ever in February. And 
part of the thing that you have, you can't understand the, the, the phenomenon which is Black Panther without understanding what happened first. And the, the constant stream of images and the story about who black people were prior to this movie coming out. So, for example, uh, you know, oh, you already, already were there. You can go back to that. So, the initial image of Aunt Jemima was this, this picture of a black domestic who, you know, just had this, you know, just this image of, of like this big smile and just this unsightly picture. And this was the, the prototype of what was taught and what was, this is what black people were. And so then when you see this strong, beautiful, intelligent black woman that's in this movie and she's like the tech, you know, geek nerd person that's all smart and, and just regal and powerful and, and you go, man, no wonder why people are identified and they are drawn to that. I saw women in the theater that had like the white dots, like the makeup on, you know, and the whole cosplay thing and it was really, and this is part of the reason why, because image matters. Image matters. We know this because God tells us in Genesis chapter 1, what? That we were made in the image of God. And unfortunately, dehumanizing images have demonstrated or has denigrated that very image that is inside of some of us. And so we have work to do. The other thing that's important is this number, 56 and 16%. Now, this is a very interesting number. Because what uh, researchers did was they studied and asked black and white Americans... This question, is racial discrimination a problem in America? 56% of African Americans say yes, it's a major problem. Only 16% of white Americans said it was. And the thing that's fascinating is that from a statistical standpoint, if you're ever into like numbers and stats, this is an extraordinary gap where on the one hand you have over half saying absolutely, and on the other, you have less than 20%. And, and so it raises this question, how can we look at the same things? How can we look at the same video and see someone gunned down and see someone beat down and come to completely different conclusions about if that was fair or not, if that was right or wrong or not? How can Christians come out and, and, and support certain, you know, a, a certain version versus other Christians? These are all people who say they love Jesus. And, and what I think is helpful, what I found helpful was to understand that lenses that we look at these things impact what we actually see. And unfortunately, one of the reasons why there's a division that's so deep in our country is because we're all seeing with, or mo many of us are seeing with half of the lens, but not the whole picture. Uh, now, I owe um, this concept to uh, Dr. Carl Ellis. He's a professor, distinguished professor, and he, and he writes a lot on uh, cultural issues and topics. And he talks about how the gospel has an A side and a B side. And the A side he talks about is, is the individual component, right? This is the component of individual beliefs and behaviors. This is, this is very important, right? Because part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to be made with this sense of dignity that we have choices, we have decisions, we have emotions, we have a sense of an intellect and will, and that we are to be accountable for those things. So we get up in the morning and what we do with our time and our day is, is, is directly related to this aspect that I am responsible for what I do. And that's, and that's deeply important. But I want you to do something for a second. Cover one side, one eye. Now, imagine trying to go through life, go through the world, crossing a street in Washington, D.C., like this. 
Now, you can still see, but you're only seeing part of the picture. And in the same way, this, if I only look at the world through an individual lens, I'll end up trying to come to conclusions that every decision that happens, every outcome is determined by individual choices. But we all know that that only tells part of the story, especially if you're coming from a scenario that uh, you're from the subdominant culture where the system doesn't work for you, where the images don't work for you. So I'll give you an example of what I mean, because I think I'm losing. I'll give you an example. So, you know, we're going to see a, a famous painting, right? Now, who's that? George Washington. George Washington crossing the Delaware River, or more recently, the Delaware Turnpike, if you're in a Geico commercial. And, uh, and, and he's, he's, you know, you see this majestic image. And for many people, you know, they see this as a, a triumph of American democracy, of American, the American Revolution, which fought against, you know, tyranny abroad, no taxation without representation, unless you're in D.C., hello. Um, so we still got that problem. But the, this other image also kind of bears that point out as well. And it's one of who's ever heard the speech, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, you know, says this pronouncement in order to, to, to rally the Virginians to the cause of revolution. But we may not, we oftentimes we don't hear the whole statement, right? I'm going to read the whole statement. Listen to this. It says, if life so, is life so dear... Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. A rousing, powerful statement, but one that's wrought with problems in the midst of it, if you understand the context of 1776 Richmond. You can almost hear the see the slaves outside the doors. Patrick Henry is talking about the woes of chains and slavery, going like, amen, brother. <laughs> give me liberty or give me death. And so somehow that part gets missed. And, and so the reality is that when people want to make this case and make this story about how, you know, just the faith is all about this conservative picture of individualism, we say, well, Jesus is not a conservative. And that's only part of the picture. Because there's another side of the a coin, another side of the lens, and that's the collective perspective. Now, we see this lens through partly throughout Scripture as well. It's there hidden in plain sight from the very first time that God appeals, appears to Moses, right? Exodus chapter 3. He says, Moses, I have seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their cries and I have sent you to be their deliverer. He's looking at a collective issue, a collective sense of oppression, and is responding to a collective crisis. Now, not only that, but even when we look at the prophets and we see people like uh, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he has the vision of seeing God in the temple, he says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Individual sin, I've messed up. I've fallen short of a holy God who is righteous. But he doesn't end there. He says, of a people of unclean lips. And in the 
Jewish mind, in the Hebraic mind, there was this understanding of a, a corporate nature of sin because the reality is that even if I, I don't have to have personally enslaved you, but if my great-grandparents did, then I had benefited from their enslavement. And so I have to account for and identify with and, and have a broken and contrite heart about that sin because it has ripple effects and implications for generations. And so there's a collective side, but we have to be careful here too. Because, um, because or else we can, we can be too extreme on that, and I'll explain in a second. But we see Frederick that. So when you understand history from this standpoint, then while you can still celebrate Fred, uh, Patrick Henry and George Washington, you might also look at what Frederick Douglass said when he was asked to speak at the commemoration 50th anniversary of the 4th of July, right? This same event. He says, this 4th of July of yours... It's not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn, to drag of man in fetters to the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems or in human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak today? See, see, what Douglas was saying was like, I have, I have collective issues. Like, even though I am personally, individually a free man, I recognize I live in a society in which many of my people are not. And so I have a different lens and a different take. I'm not, I'm not interested in the hot dogs and the, and the burgers on, on the 4th of July and the fireworks. I, I see a greater issue. But here's the thing where we have to also see that a collective lens, while important, while valuable, in and of itself, is also insufficient. And because if I only see that, if I only look at that, then I miss out on the specific call that God has specifically for me about what am I going to do about it. I could just point the finger at a collective them and then just kind of detach myself from responsibility. But so, so the issue here is that yeah, Jesus is not a conservative, but he's also not a liberal either. See, see, it's kind of like when, when Joshua asked the angel of the Lord, like, yo, whose side are you on when he appeared to him? He's like, the question is, whose side are you on? I, I, God is not like, you can't, you know, he's not a lobby. <laughs> he, he, he's not some side that, like, you got to align up with your causes. The question is, how do I conform to his agenda? So the, the big picture is how do we see with both sides of the percent? How do we see side A and side B? How do we sing with one accord, Christ is enough for me? Well, that's what we're going to get into with the rest of our time and have a vision of community that looks at both of these things. And we're going to look at a new vision for community, a vision that will allow us to see with 2020 vision, a vision that will allow us to see both sides so we're not walking down the street with one side closed. And we're going to look at that using Acts chapter 6. Acts is a fascinating uh, study in this very issue of ethnicity, of race, of cultural difference, of division, because that is really the full context of what the gospel is all about. What do I mean by that? Well, an Acts is really the sequel to Luke. Luke takes a scholarly researched approach. We know this because if you read the first couple verses of Luke chapter 1, we see that he gathered and he interviewed and he collected all of the stories and the perspectives that people shared, um, eyewitness accounts of Jesus and his life, and he captures them for this guy Theophilus. Um, and then, then after, at the end of uh, Luke, where you see the death, burial, resurrection, Acts 1 begins from that. 
And Acts 1 is, okay, what are the implications of what we just experienced? And in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus starts off. This is the whole outline of the book of Acts, by the way. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive holy, uh, power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And that's something that we hear all the times, but we don't understand that that outline is the playbook for the church in the book of Acts, and it has everything to do with this issue of ethnicity and race. How do we know this? Well, what actually happens in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and, and everybody, and they start speaking in these different languages. All the people from all over the world are there and they're hearing these Galilean boys, these like kind of guys from up north, these kind of country bumpkins, and they're speaking French and they're speaking Spanish and they're speaking Arabic and they're speaking, and they're like, whoa, what, not technically French, Spanish, I know, you know little bit of an anachronism, but follow me here for a second. They're speaking different languages to honestly get to this place where, and the people are confused. How can they understand? How can I understand what God is saying to me in my language? And he says, look, this is to fulfill the prophecy of what God said to Joel that in the last days I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh. Do you see what happens? The very symbol that God has done something new in the gospel is the fact that people from different ethnicities can hear the message. That's the beginning of the church age. So then by the time we get to chapter 6, though, unfortunately, they didn't quite get the memo that they were supposed to spread out beyond Jerusalem. And some problems get started. So in Acts chapter 6, we see this, and this really leads to the first point that we want to get to is three points. The first point is look. This is what we have to do, look. Now, in Acts 6, you'll see what I mean. It says this at the beginning. Now, in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because they, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they said, in the midst of all this great stuff happening, the church is growing, people are expanding, there's a problem in the church. Now, I know that's kind of hard for us to understand in 2018 because we don't have problems in churches no more. <laughs> that was back then. But there was a problem in the church. And this problem, if you look at it, like, what's a Hellenist and what's a Hebrew? Well, these were different types of, of Jews. One were the Hebraic Jews were Jews that were from Israel. They, they had been there, their ancestral home for, for, most of, for, all, for generations. They were able to keep their customs because their worship was still at the temple. And this is different than the Hellenistic Jews, which just meant that they were from the diaspora of Judaism, which means that they were some of them from the Babylonian exile and the Persian captivity. They're all spread out, which also means that they have now taken on uh, different customs. They've, they've had some intermarriage. They look different. They speak different. They don't speak Aramaic and Hebrew like the ones in Israel do. They speak differently. They're kind of not from around here. They may or may not be documented, but they're different. And so there's somehow, some way, these, this group gets alienated and gets left out, these widows. And what the disciples do is they look at the situation with new eyes. They don't blame the victim. They don't say, well, you know, it's your fault. But they actually look at the situation and they decide to do something about it. And this is the first point because it really changes and radically looks different than how we are taught to talk about race or think about race in the church oftentimes. There's a book uh, called Divided by Faith that came out, um, and uh, this researcher, Christian sociologist, actually studied and interviewed black and white Christian perspectives on race. And um, this is what he wrote about the white evangelical perspective uh, as a result of his research. He said, for them... 
the race problem is one or more, uh, or more of three main types. So he said this is the main types that he was able to categorize. Type one, prejudiced individuals resulting in bad relationships and sin. So what he's saying is the way that the majority culture folks that he interviewed said that the race problem is, a, is fundamentally an issue of individuals doing bad things and having prejudices. The second version was that other, result, uh, other groups, usually African-Americans, trying to make race problems a group issue when there is nothing more than individual problems. So he said, so the race problem is the fact that black people talk about race as a problem. That's the problem in that second view. And then the third view is it says a fabrication of the self-interested, uh, again, often African-Americans, but also the media, the government, or liberals. Now, this was written in 1999. So funny how things don't change over time. Somehow these things are still just an imagination in people's mind. This is what, how Emerson defines what he means by we, living in a racialized society. He says, a racialized society is one that allocates differential economic, political, social, and even psychological rewards to groups along racial lines, lines that are socially constructed. And this is the reality, that even when you control for education, even when you control for wealth, there's still difference of outcomes in our country when you look at white and black or other ethnicities, you know, like outcomes and all of these across the spectrum. And that's the result of this thing called race. Now, quickly, what do we mean? I, I feel like it's important to kind of define. When I say culture, right, what we refer to by culture is simply the sum total of the ways of living that, that people create, right? Our language, our clothes, our food. That's culture. It's, it's, it's changeable, it's interchangeable. Anyone can partake in it. Anybody can go to a, you know, a certain restaurant, an Indian restaurant, a, a, you know, a, a Chinese restaurant, a, a, a you know, Mexican restaurant, and experience the culture from that place. Now, that's different than ethnicity. Ethnicity has to do with the fact or state of belonging to a social group that often has a common nationality or heritage, right? So we all have a certain, so if you take Ancestry.com like I did, right? So, you know, you do a little swab. Anybody do a DNA test before? Okay, I'm wearing just a few of us. And what I found was that I was 29% Cameroon Congo. Now, which is crazy because I actually studied abroad in Cameroon and didn't even realize I was back home. Um, but the reality is that ethnicity has to do with actual shared heritage now. Here's where it gets tricky. You can have the same uh, heritage but not have the same culture because I wasn't raised in Cameroon. I don't, I, you know, I, so when I got there, I was experiencing things for the first time. And then lastly, race. Now, race, what is the difference between ethnicity and race? Race is the socially imposed or hierarchical, the, the meaning that we attach to this ethnicity. And it's, it's, it varies when you go from place to place. It doesn't stay static, right? Like, a Cameroonian is Cameroonian regardless of if he's in, you know, if he's in, you know, Brazil or if he's in Bangladesh. But race actually changes. It's funny because uh, my wife, uh, you, saw, you saw a picture of her earlier. I remember a friend of mine who um, is a missionary in South Africa. He said, you know, in South Africa, she would be considered colored South uh, colored. And I would be considered a black South African because our skin complexion is different. So it changes based on the need. All right. So, we have, so the first thing they did was they looked. They saw an issue that was happening. The second point is that they learned. 
they, to learn. And this is the same thing for us. We have to look, then we have to learn. It says, and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples. Now, this is fascinating again, because I look at this and I go, wow. In verse 2, it totally, totally shows a different way than how we respond. Oftentimes, something happens, different racial ethnicities, uh, racial categories and groups come up with a, a, a complaint raises among them, and they are blamed for the complaint. But here it says the disciples said they summoned the full number and said, we got to talk about this. There's an issue here. And look at what they do next. It says that pick out from among you seven men of good report, repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. So as a result of looking, and then they learned and started to hear this is, there's a certain problem, there's a certain situation, and here's what we're going to do about it. Thank you. Here's what we're going to do about it. They learned, they learned, they learned. And then look at what it says. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they, and then they go in to explain about what they did next. And here's the point. To learn from the past, we must listen to the perspectives of the marginalized. You're not going to get there by simply taking in things how you are automatically have or are as you're used to. We have to listen to the complaints of the marginalized. Or like a famous uh, scholar and thought leader said one time, I can tell you, I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Now, some of you are laughing so you know where I'm going with this with Taken, but the idea is that when you come from a space in which you're not in the dominant culture, you develop a certain set of skills about how to look at life, how to look at society, how to just, you know, understand how to deal with things. And here's one of the key skills, that this is something that those of us, regardless of our dominance, and, you know, we can be subdominant in one way, marginalized in one way, and not in the other, right? You know, as I'm African-American, but I'm also a man. And so in that sense, you know, there's dominance and there's uh, marginalization in the same thing. Same thing can be true for, um, you know, sexual orientation, could be true for gender identities, any of these things, right? But here's the thing. It says to, we become skilled when, and so I'll give you an example. So, all right, so I'm married. And for most of our marriage, uh, you know, my wife, uh, you know, we had a small, you know, our daughter. And so she was raising, you know, so I was doing the traveling with Jeremy and these bands. And she was kind of holding it down for the most part and uh, at home. And I would kind of get frustrated sometimes when things weren't like exactly how I thought they should be. Like, yo, you got all this time on your hands. Why can't things be together? I know it's terrible, but this was just my perspective. So then she ended up going to school full time. And I was like, well, you're going to school full time. It's my turn to take on some of these duties and perspectives and, and everything, right? So I started to, you know, drop my daughter off and, you know, at school, arrange my schedule. I was cooking. And then all of a sudden, I was like, yo, this is a beast. Like, I don't know how you did this for so long. And she was just looking at me like, I know. I know. So I learned, and actually it turned out that I actually enjoyed cooking, and she enjoyed eating my cooking, so we kind of just kept with it this whole time. But the thing is, you know, and I'm like, okay, so, you know, we're going to go back to the old way? She's like, no, 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 you still got a few years. You still got a few. But, but here's the thing. She, I, I could learn things from her about myself that I was just assuming and taking for granted because I was coming from the same space of what I knew. 
and we can learn from each other. Third and last point is to lead. We look, we learn, and then we lead. And this is, the, this is a fascinating thing. I love this story because look what happens next. It says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, this is one of those moments where you like read and you see a whole bunch of names that you try to have to fumble through and then you just kind of like peruse them and just kind of go to the next thing. This is why you shouldn't do that in this point. Because if you notice the names, the names are not Benjamin, the names are not David, the names are not Judah. These, these are not Hebraic names, right? These are Greek names, which meant that these Hebraic Jewish leaders and the disciples realized that they had blind spots and that in order to equally distribute the, 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 the disbursement to the widows that they needed to bring on people that could understand and identify with the marginalized themselves. So they picked the Hellenistic Jews, they, that, which meant that they relinquished power. They, they, they saw that the best way to lead was to allow other people to be empowered to do the leading. The gospel flourishes when we empower the marginalized to lead. But there's a challenge with that sometimes because we can feel like, well, you know, I kind of like being in charge. I kind of like calling the shots. But the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, this is what he did when he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, this is what I want you to do likewise. This is the picture that he gave us. And this is, and, and, and this is amazing. Imagine the implications of this. If this is how we live as a society. If, if those of us realize that, you know, I, I have this, been entrusted with leadership and I've been entrusted with choices and decisions, and so I'm going to look for ways to disperse that and share that with those who are on the outside and on the, on the margins. And it reminds me of what King said when he was uh, uh, contemplating on the challenges that he faced in the civil rights movement. If you read a letter from a Birmingham jail, you see him dialoguing with Christians who were telling him that, you know, you need to just stop and be quiet because they, it was being disruptive. And he said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And I can attest to this for the last couple years because there's been a resurgence of, 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 of a sense of concern among many of my African-American and other people of color Christians who are shocked and dismayed that over the last couple years as the vitriol and, and, and as, as the rhetoric has, has become so racialized that many of our white brothers and sisters don't say anything. And we're like, how do you not say, what? he just, did you, Charlottesville? You hear what he just said about Haiti? That's not cool. like, and so when there's silence, you all of a sudden go, oh, well, how do you feel about me? I thought this was home, but I'm not so sure now. And that silence is deadly. We can't be silent. The gospel is to go and break down these walls, to break down these barriers. And the thing is, it's costly. It costs. Look at the, the conclusion of this, the immediate implication of this decision. It says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and the great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The, it, look, immediately after they make this decision, the word increased, the number of disciples multiplied. This is a cri mission critical issue. And the amazing thing is you can actually look at the rest of the book of Acts and see this is the deciding moment that instead of making the church decision, 
this insular, exclusive club that only a certain people could be a part of became this global phenomenon that people began to reach because all of a sudden people go, wait a minute. They're not going to just be tribal in the way that they do with things, but they're going to actually be fair and just, and they're going to give glory to God. And so after this moment, look what happens next in the rest of the chapter. We ain't got time to go into it, but Stephen ends up being empowered to lead, and he proclaims the gospel, and he gets martyred. And as a result of that, the church gets dispersed beyond Jerusalem and Judea. And in chapter 8, after he gets martyred, you see Philip. Where does he go? To Samaria. But not only does he go to Samaria, then the Holy Spirit sends him to an Ethiopian eunuch, an official of Kandiki's court. And as a result of him going there, the gospel goes to Ethiopia, uttermost parts of the world. And in fact, the Ethiopian Coptic church today says that we got started from that Ethiopian official in Acts chapter 8. So next time someone wants to tell you that Christianity is a white man's religion, go to tell them, that, eh, bro, you ain't, you ain't read the story right. Because from the very beginning in Acts chapter 2, we were there. In Acts chapter 8, it was in Africa before it was in Europe. We got the receipts. It's right there in the book. I'm just saying, I'm trying to help us out. I'm trying to help us out. So, this is what William Wilberforce said. He said, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. William Wilberforce had a dramatic conversion experience. He became the youngest person in Parliament to ever be selected in Parliament at the age of 24. He was mentored by a guy whose life got wrecked by Jesus when he was a slave trader and wrote this song called Amazing Grace that was a reflection on the fact that how could God save me? A wretch who was lost but now found, was blind but now I see. And this guy then trains and mentors William Wilberforce who now commits his life to end and abolish the slave trade in Britain. It took 20 years to do, but finally he became victorious in that way because he understood that his personal faith had to have public implications. Side A meets side B. So what should we do? Let me get out your way with these points. First, we have to look by crossing race primary relationship. So what I mean by that is we just got to start to be, take the initiative to, to just reach out to someone who is different than us and to learn and to connect. We have to, you know, just make that move. And, and as a church, if anybody can do it, we ought to be able to do it because we have this fellowship that we're one in the spirit. We have to take the initiative to do that. Secondly, we have to learn Recognize social structures of inequality. We have to not only just see the individual lens, but we also have to see the collective lens and know what to do in order to fix and resolve those problems. And then third, lead. The dominant group, majority culture, white folk, whatever word you want to use. I'm just trying. Can I keep it real? Um, must repent of personal, historical, and social sins. Now, the personal sin, we can kind of wrap our heads around that. Historic, and, and this is when you start to say, well, wait a minute, I didn't own anybody. I didn't, what did I do? But the reality is what the scriptures call us to, the woe, I'm a people of unclean lips, is not just an, an action or a prayer that says, I'm sorry, but it's a heart posture that says, I, I am broken by the fact that I live in a broken system that prioritizes me. 
And I repent of that, and I can, I'll turn away from that. And when I turn away from it, I don't, this is not about white guilt. This is not about feeling bad about yourself, kicking yourself. This is about turning away by saying, okay, I have privilege and influence. How do I use and leverage that for people who are in need? How do I use this thing? How do I use my fact that it, my gender is something that puts me at an advantage in this society? How do I give voice to those who don't have that? And then to the subdominant group must forgive those who repent. You know, this is, this, this is again, they, see, see, Jesus messes with everybody, right? Like, nobody gets off free. It's like, you know, it's this aspect, it's like, we live in a culture, in a context right now where this, this part isn't very popular, right? Anger is popular, rage is popular, but a sense of a desire for reconciliation, a desire for relationship, a desire for forgiveness isn't so popular. But someone once told me that forgive, unforgiveness, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping the other person dies. We have hope in the gospel, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, Paul, the guy who was sitting there while Stephen was being stoned, while he was being stoned and asking that God would forgive the very people who, he was, stoned, who was stoning him. And I believe that God used that impression on this young man who was standing there in agreement with those things, and it wrecked his life, and all of a sudden, the chief persecutor became the chief apologist. This would be like Osama bin Laden joined the Billy Graham Association. I mean, this was a dramatic transformation. And this is what he says. He understood that, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul recognized that the gospel, that what Jesus accomplished on the cross had immediate, profound, not just implications for our relationship with God, but for our relationship with each other. That it was cosmic, it was comprehensive, it was complete. So, here's a few resources to help you along the way. Invite a friend for dinner and hear their story. This, what's your story? Here's a website that has some great bibliographies, uh, some great blog posts, uh, podcasts, all that good stuff, lensesinstitute.com. Secondly, learn. I would recommend Divided by Faith is a great book to start with by Smith and Emerson. Documentaries like the 13th you can find on Netflix. And then thirdly, lead. Find a particular way to be an advocate. I know as a church, you guys, do a lot of great work with justice and compassion missions. So you have opportunities right there with that, as well as financial literacy, healthcare, just whatever you're good at, right? Just do that. Just help somebody. And when we do that, we'll find that God is, we're more near to him than we ever imagined and thought. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that reconciliation is your idea but you don't talk about reconciliation without reparation, without repairing what was broken. And Lord, uh, we pray that you help us to be a light in dark places. You help us to be salt where the culture needs to be preserved. Would you help it start with us as a collective on the side B, but also us as individuals inside A? Lord, help us live out this call for communion with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.